0: Over there in just a minute, but I'm Kenny. I'm not Jeremy Treat, by the way. If you were reading the brochure, and maybe you even come up here, if you came up here to see Jeremy Treat, I'm so sorry. Um, but my understanding is there was a family emergency a couple of weeks ago uh, for, for their family that he needed to bow out, and, uh, and my family was happy to come up here uh, with me and, and fill in. This is a real privilege, so it's great. If you weren't here this morning, by the way, I sweat a lot, so I sent my son back to the room to grab a little good old Southern church like cloth like that, so don't mind me. Um, But yeah, so I'm Kenny, my wife Betsy, my oldest daughter Lily, my only daughter Lily, but she's also the oldest, and Levi, the older son, and then Elijah's having a blast at the first day of day camp over there uh, tonight. But actually, I wanted to, to start tonight wearing two hats, like a... Art was saying, at Grace, the church where I'm at, serve on staff with Eric, who's sitting over there with his son Isaac, Uh, I oversee our preaching team, we have a team uh, that that rotates and shares the preaching of the pulpit, Uh, and I oversee our sung worship, so from Sunday to Sunday, I kind of go back and forth, Uh, but I asked Art if tonight, if I could wear both hats uh, and sing a little bit at the beginning, just to get our hearts uh, engaged, so, let me just grab my guitar. I don't know if, if your family has any traditions surrounding camp. I grew up, Betsy and I grew up going to Forest Home, had a lot of traditions surrounding camp. Uh, but in all the years you've been coming up to camp, God's people said, Amen. 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 Please receive it. All right, well, thank you for indulging our family tradition. We actually rolled down the windows to start playing the song, and it was still 100 degrees outside, so we rolled them right back up, (laughs) and we sang with the air conditioning on. Uh, Why don't you turn to the Gospel of Luke with me? And not every single hand went up in the room, so I just wanted to take one minute to kind of summarize how I wanted to to frame our next uh, four nights together, Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Uh, no, Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke all four nights, and uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a verse that I love because it says two important things about how we grow in Christ, Um, and let me read it here for us. You can turn there if you want to read with me, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says this, Paul says, here's how we grow in Christ. He says, we all with unveiled face, so the Holy Spirit takes us who were dead in our sins blind to the glory of Christ and he, he pulls back the veil and now with this unveiled face as we behold the glory of the Lord we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. And two things I love that 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 reminds us is the process is slow. I love that it's, I think about that often from one degree of glory to another when, when it feels imperceptible to me and I'm discouraged and sometimes I feel like I'm going in reverse. I'm reminded this process of rooting out the old. Adam in us and reconforming us to the image of Christ happens slowly, but it also happens as we look away from ourselves and to Christ. Because so often I can get fixated when I think, when I'm despairing that I'm not growing in Christ, I look here to myself, to fear, how do I make myself? And Paul says, No, it happens as your eyes are taking in the glory of Jesus. And the more you're looking at the glory of Jesus, God conforms us into this image. So this week. I want four snapshots from the Gospel of Luke uh, that highlight different aspects of the glory of Christ, that as we behold, in ways, we become like. And tonight, it's this. I want us to behold, in this story of Jesus' interaction with these two very different people, uh, that He is a faithful uh, savior, and he's worthy of our trust. He's faithful. And worthy of our trust, worthy of all our trust. In fact, um, I want to begin with a question from the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know if you're familiar. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in mid- 1500s, 1563 in what is now Germany. And it was a document, both a confessional document. In other words, it was theology. It was trying to collect together what do we believe the Bible teaches about the most important things. But it was also written in a format to be a teaching tool, so it's a question and answer format, 129 of the most important questions you can ask of the Bible and answer to help us understand what we truly believe. And the first question is arguably the most important question we can consider. And I I want us to read it, it's going to be up on the screen there. But it begins with this question, what is your only comfort? In life or death, now, as we were singing in Christ Alone, I hadn't occurred to me, but I wonder if, I think Stuart Towner who wrote that song, I wonder if he had this question and the answer to it in mind because so much of what we just sang is embedded in the answer we're just about to read. But listen to this, Uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? The word only means, it's not just saying, what are some things that comfort you in your life and death? There's lots of things that bring us momentary comfort or temporary comfort, even good things. But the only means, um, what uh, comfort is strong enough both to uphold me in the face of anything I might face in a fallen world, but also strong enough to enable me to face death? In the end, if Christ doesn't return first, is there a single solitary comfort um, that can comfort me, me in both life and death? And here is how the catechism answers. It says this, what is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in my life and death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. That's the, the angle, the facet of Jesus we're gonna behold tonight, that he's a faithful savior. So in other words, the entirety of my life rests in the trustworthy hands of Jesus, my faithful savior. That's where the comfort comes. So why is that so comforting? Well, the answer goes on. He is fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood. And he set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, gets better, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready for him uh, from now on to live for him. That's an extraordinary answer. If if that's all true, that is a comfort in both life and death. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus secured and guaranteed every word that I just read in that answer? That Jesus isn't a second-rate regional savior that can comfort us in some things... Or can he comfort us in everything, in life and death? Well, Luke wrote his gospel to introduce us to this faithful Savior. In fact, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, when he wrote it to Theophilus, he said, I was so careful in compiling these stories and these parables and these teachings of Jesus because I want you to be certain that all of this is true. And it's not just so that Theophilus and everyone else like us can say, I know the truth and be certain, but that certainty is with an ultimate aim. The certainty is so that we can have hope and peace, right? Not just so that we can have true knowledge, but Luke wanted us to have certainty that these things really happen so that we can be really confident that that comfort is secure in life and death. A key question in Jesus' ministry as he went from town to town and he taught in ways that left people saying, who is this who teaches like this? And as he performed miracles and healed diseases and cast out demons and even raised the dead, the question that all of this forced people to ask, right, was, do you know who I am? Right? As he's doing these things, his works are asking the question, as you, do you realize who I am? But there's a second question that comes along with that question. It's not just, do you know who I am? But as Jesus' ministry goes on, the second implied question is, do you trust me? Because you can know who Jesus is even and get an A-plus on the theology test of who Jesus is, but you know, you may not trust him. So Jesus wants us to both know who he really is, but then knowing who he really is, to actually entrust ourselves to him as a faithful savior. He wants it to mean something. The demons are quite clear of who Jesus is, and they hate him. They don't trust him. So we need to know who Jesus truly is and then trust him. So my question tonight as we go to this story is, do you know who Jesus is, and do you trust him? Is he, is he your only comfort in life or death? If he isn't, I'm, I've been praying that, that this passage tonight would pull that veil back and you would recognize Jesus as the Son of God in his glory. But if he already is, I'm praying the Spirit would just increase your confidence in him. This morning, I, I read this little bit from Dane Ortland where he said, I think that we often fail to grow because we just have this domesticated view of Jesus. It's not untrue or uh, uh, unorthodox, but it's just domesticated. It's just small. It's through like a porthole window. And we need to come back again and again to the word, especially to the gospels, to see Jesus for ourselves, to keep helping us realize, oh, he's way more glorious than I thought. So turn to Luke chapter eight is where we'll be tonight. This is the last time I mentioned the heat, but I was thinking when they were first opening the windows up in here to like suck the air out, I was thinking of Eutychus in Acts 20. And the it was, preaching was getting late and Paul was going on and on. It says the lamps were burning I'm assuming that maybe meant it was kind of getting hot and stuffy in there, and he fell out of the building and died. Thankfully, the spirit used Paul to miraculously raise him for life. So I promise not to go that long tonight. I will. I will be mindful of 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 our context. But uh, I want to read this scene, Luke chapter eight, verses 40 to 56. And as I read it, I want you to notice as I read that this whole scene plays out as a series of interruptions, one after the next. It begins in the very first place by Jesus teaching, and he gets interrupted in the middle of teaching by this desperate father. And then as he's interacting with this desperate father, this helpless poor woman comes up from behind and interrupts what Jesus is about to run and go do. And then, in the middle of all that, By the end of this, we see Jesus interrupt a funeral, interrupt death. Let's read Luke Luke 8, 40 through 56. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she couldn't be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her bleeding ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, In other words, she wasn't going to get out of here without getting noticed. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she'd touched him and how she'd immediately been healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Jesus again, Do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. All right, let's dive right into it. Interruption number one, Jesus... Is about to keep teaching. Crowds are pressing in. He has an agenda right now. He is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's pressing from village to village to village on his way eventually to Jerusalem to do what he came to do, to give his life at the cross. So he's there to teach, and this father bursts in who's desperate. Look at verse 41, and what do we learn about this father? Well, first of all, he's a known man. Luke can tell us his name. It's Jairus. He's not a nobody in this town. Everyone there would have known him because he was important. It says he was the leader of the synagogue. So he was influential. He was respected in the community. Likely he would have been financially well off. But we also see in verse 41 he is desperate because where we first encounter him is bursting through the crowds, falling on his feet at the dirt and begging Jesus to come quickly. The audacity to interrupt his teaching and say, please, you've got to come now. This isn't the sort of man we would expect getting down at someone's feet and begging, right? But he's desperate, verse 42 says. Here's why he's desperate. His only daughter who is 12 is dying. As a girl dad, I'm immediately clued in on this story. It's interesting in this story, 12 years is gonna come up twice. I don't know if when I read it, if that stuck out to you. Two things, two two different situations here are described as 12 years. First of all, she's 12 years old, it says, and this is brought up to describe how short of a life she's had so far. She's only just starting, and she's about to die. Her little life is just going to be snuffed out like that. She's not even adult yet. And she's Jairus' only daughter, so it just magnifies the sadness. This is his only child. And for all his status and his influence and his power and who he is in the community, just like every single other person in the village, he is as desperate as the next when it comes to facing death. He can't do anything about this, and he knows it. And in that way, we're all like Jairus, right? Death has this way of totally leveling the playing field. And making us all realize that the various levels of things that we have, and influence we have, and wealth we have, and whatever, at the end of the day, when it comes to facing death, we're all in the place of Gyrus. When it comes, we can't do anything about it. Death is universal. So here's this man. Death has come for his only daughter. She's 12. And he's heard, obviously, that Jesus can do something about it. He's heard about the healings. He's heard about these signs and these works. And so he comes, and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Desperate faith brings him to the faith of Jesus. I want to pause for a minute. When life brings you to desperate places, to the end of yourself, some of these moments like this where you realize, I can't do anything else about this. I'm utterly dependent on God doing something. Does it drive you toward Jesus or away from him? Because for Jairus, he recognizes, "This, this guy's my only hope. And he runs to Jesus. God, I think, in his providence has countless reasons that he ordains trials for us. And so often, he doesn't tell us, right? The whole book of Job is to remind us, if anything else, that God doesn't owe us an answer. And he's good and sovereign and wise. And he doesn't need to explain himself. And so often he doesn't, and that's so hard for us. We don't get an explanation why. But I do believe that one thing we know in any trial and suffering and desperate place that we face, a purpose that God has for it, we might not know all the purposes, but at least one is to force a desperation that causes us to rely on God. Every trial, every grief, every suffering, that's at least a foundational purpose God has, is that we would recognize our need and we would look upward and trust 2 Corinthians 1, Paul describes a time that he and his fellow missionaries um, were so utterly afflicted that he says, we despaired of life itself. We felt like we'd received the sentence of death. He doesn't give the details, but whatever it was, I mean, here's Paul, and he said, Lord, just take me home. That, he wanted to die. And he says, looking back in hindsight, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then Paul says, and he did rescue us, and he will rescue us again. as so we ask asks for prayer, but it forced reliance. It forced active trust in God. Uh, to use a phrase that Christians used to use in a former generation, and it's still in hymns that we sing, is um, they proved God through the affliction. You know the hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus"? If you don't, the chorus says, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. And maybe that has always sounded weird to you. Have you ever sung that you thought, that sounds like I'm bragging. Like, I proved Jesus? You're not proving anything. <laughs> proving in the way that it, was, it used to be used meant um, not to demonstrate something as certain, but to learn from experience. In other words, to prove Jesus is to say... Whenever I've entrusted myself in desperation to Jesus, he's never failed me. He's always been faithful. And in that way, as I actively trusted him, he proved himself over and over. And in this scene, I think we see Jairus and this woman prove Jesus in this way. Even with timid faith and desperate faith, sort of fleeting faith, they still nevertheless come to Jesus and they depend on him, and he proves himself faithful in each of these stories. So let's look at each of these stories. Back to Jairus. Sorry, you can, I can feel his toe tapping as we're waiting. Jesus agrees to come with them. But just as Jesus went, it says, the people pressed around him, and they're slowing him down, which allows time for this second interruption. Look at verses 43 to 50. Jairus is just thinking, okay, there's hope here on the horizon. And there's this woman, verse 43, and unlike Jairus, she's unknown. No one got her name at the end of this scene to say, hey, by the way, who's your name? So that it can get included in the story. She's just this poor woman. And unlike Jairus, she's powerless. Listen, every phrase that describes this woman adds to the picture of helpless that she is. She's suffered physically. She's had a bleeding condition for 12 years just stop for a minute. Let's put 12 years in perspective. Can you think of where you were 12 years ago? Right now it's 2023, so it's that 2011. In 2011, the fall of 2011, my wife Betsy and I and these two right here who were little and Elijah wasn't in our family yet, we got a three-month sabbatical to and we took it and went back to Louisville, Kentucky for three months and watched the fall colors and read the Bible a lot and got a lot of rest. And, and every no, uh, October and November, my Facebook memories come up and make me go, oh, I miss those days. And I remember how little they were. Lily Mae was doing homeschool kindergarten, and Levi wasn't even in kindergarten yet, and now Lily's about to start Biola in the fall. So then I come back to the story. So this woman had suffered for 12 years. That's how long this woman had suffered. And the bleeding would have made her ceremonial unclean, according to the Jewish law, right? So she'd suffered socially, unlike Jairus, who was at the center of the religious community. For 12 years, this woman's been on the outskirts looking in. Maybe she hadn't felt a a hug for 12 years. Physical touch of other people had to stay distant to keep from making other people unclean. And Luke tells us she'd spent all her living on physicians. She's broke. And she still wasn't healed. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, it even adds to it. It says she was even in worse condition than she was before she spent all that money. Which when you think about what first century medicine was probably like, that's probably not very surprising, right? I mean, this woman was in a desperate case. But she, like Jairus, also believes that Jesus has the power to heal what no doctor could heal. But notice, unlike Jairus, who approached Jesus publicly, breaks in, breaks up the teaching and says, you got to come with me. She sneaks in from behind silently, covertly, and just touches, touches the hem of his garment. She's trying to just sneak in and sneak out. Why? She's ashamed. She she knows she's unclean. She knows she shouldn't be anywhere near this crowd, much less in the middle of it where everyone's bumping shoulders and touching, much less touching this honored rabbi who's coming through their town. It seems like this woman, although she has faith that Jesus has power to do something for her, she's not sure that Jesus uh, wants her to touch him. I think she thinks, he may be able to heal me, but he surely doesn't want me near him. But she's wrong. Look at verses 44, 45. So she sneaks in and she touches the hem of his garment and two things happen immediately. One, she's totally healed, completely healed. And Jesus totally knows it. (laughs) Immediately, he knows that this healing has happened. Try to imagine her panic. She's in the middle of this crowd and if everyone realizes who she is, maybe she has her, you know, you know, Garment covered up to kind of keep her face hidden so people don't realize who she is. And all of a sudden, everyone's sort of spreading out from Jesus and just saying, who was it? Who was it? And everyone's looking around at everyone else but Jesus. Was it you? Was it you? You can imagine her panic. She's going to get discovered and exposed and probably condemned for what she's done. And it's so funny. His disciples, it's sort of like they're like, say, Master, who isn't touching you here? (laughs) Everybody is touching you. What do you mean who touched you? But he says, no, something unique and powerful just happened here. One person touched me out of faith unlike anyone else touched me. Jesus isn't content to let this healing just be this impersonal power encounter. You know, I was thinking about, I mean, so Jesus had this awareness that some, someone had just been healed, right? He could have just thought, oh, bless her heart. But he stops everything Because he wants her and all the crowd to know why she'd just been healed. That he's not just a lucky, magical rabbit's foot. If you can just get in there and just touch him, you can be healed and move on your way. He's way more than that. He's a loving, compassionate, powerful savior who wants to be touched. He's just as willing to be interrupted by this woman as he was willing to be interrupted by Jairus. He wants everybody to know it. So finally, she has to raise her hand and say, it was me. And it's not condemnation that Jesus brings, but he commends her, he holds her up. He exposes her faith and then he commends it. Look at verse 47 and 48. When the woman saw she wasn't hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been healed think about why and how just for a second so she told all the people why she'd touched him that is a testimony uh, to her faith right well the why is i was desperate but i believed that he could heal me and the how was to say i simply just got myself to jesus and he says daughter your faith has made you well go in peace I love that he calls this woman, this poor old woman, sick woman, daughter. In the same scene where Jesus just got interrupted, there's still another daughter who's waiting for Jesus' attention. But he stops for this daughter of Abraham. And he commends her faith. He says, Your faith has made you well. Pause for a second. I don't want us to misunderstand. Your faith has made you well doesn't mean your faith earned a healing, that your faith accomplished your healing. Her faith got her to Jesus, who had the power to heal. That's how it always works. Our faith never accomplishes any sort of healing or response from the Lord, but it puts us in the posture to receive what Jesus alone can do, right? That's how faith works. Her faith, even though it's timid here, it got her to Jesus, and Jesus made her well. I love that. Timid faith is faith. It's not just strong faith. A lot of people's faith have been wrecked by the teaching that, well, if healing doesn't happen, if the answer to your prayer doesn't happen, your faith must not have been strong enough. It must have been timid or weak. All right, what about this woman? Her Timid faith got her to Jesus. That's all it took, and he healed her. And not just healed her, but he says to her as she goes, he says, go in peace. You know, Jesus wants her to know as she leaves that her relationship with God is one of peace. That this little faith that she demonstrated in coming to Jesus was evidence of the heart that she had. Remember all the way back at the beginning of Luke, the angels come blessed uh, when Jesus is born, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And Jesus says, this daughter of Abraham, go in peace. You're one of those with whom God is pleased. I can see it in your faith. I want to ask, can you relate to this woman's timid faith? Do you sometimes feel ashamed, unworthy to approach Jesus, unwelcome to bring your requests or cast your cares on him? I have felt that way. Maybe it's because of things you've done in your past that you've confessed again and again and again, and it still makes you feel unworthy to ask for his help. Or maybe your things that you're doing right now are keeping you from reaching out to Jesus. Maybe it's things that were done to you in your past, but they nevertheless hang over you like a guilty burden, and they keep you feeling unworthy to fall at Jesus' feet. This picture of this woman tonight should convince you Jesus will not turn you away. He wants you to leave his presence in peace. All right, back to Jairus. Look at verse 49. Can you just imagine what's going through his head right now? As they're just getting started, the crowds close in, this woman touches, it stops everything to a halt. And then he asks who touched him, and they wait until she identifies. And then he asks the woman to give her testimony, and then he talks more with her, and you can feel him like, let's go. My daughter is dying. This woman's healed, all right? My daughter is dying. Another heart question here. Do you trust Jesus when he's not operating according to your preferred timeline? when it feels like he doesn't share your urgency, your concern, whether it's the how long variety of this bleeding woman, where it's going on and on and on and on, and it just seems like the heavens are just shut, or if it's the urgent, fearful variety of this father who's watching his worst case scenario play out before his eyes but before they can even get a move on and Jesus can get back to the original task this bad news arrives it says while he was still speaking someone from the ruler's house came and said your daughter's dead he was sit- he must in that moment been thinking this woman's healing just meant the death of my daughter this is worst nightmare Now, here's the test for Jairus' faith. He had come to Jesus with faith that this man could could prevent the death of his daughter. She was on death's doorstep, but he can do something about it. But now here's the question. Can he reverse it? That seems too much to believe. At least that's what the person from his household believes. Look at the text. The person who came with this bad news says, "Don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. In other words, whatever faith you had in him up until this point, this has just exceeded his pay grade. She's gone. Don't trouble the teacher. My paraphrase, Jesus says, oh, no trouble. Don't fear, only believe, she will be well. Don't fear, only believe, she will be well. Here's the third interruption. Look at verses 51 to 56. Jesus, the story doesn't end here. He's still gonna go to the house with Jairus to get this daughter. Jesus interrupts a funeral with his powerful word. Verses 51 to 53, here's the moment of truth. Before they arrive, people have already begun their mourning. People are already gathered at the house and wailing and they're grieving this, this little girl who's died. And Jesus gets there and says, don't weep. How strange would that have been, Right? Don't weep, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. Now, Jesus wasn't mistaken, right? We know this. Jesus wasn't mistaken. He didn't think she was asleep. He knew she had died. But we're supposed to read that and realize, for Jesus, death isn't any more difficult than sleep. Everyone is saying, don't bother Jesus anymore. It's too late. And Jesus looks in the eye and says, Don't fear, just believe. So the question is, whose don't is he going to believe? Don't bother Jesus or don't fear? Will his answer to question number one, do you know who this is, turn into, will you trust me? That's what he's looking at Jairus in the eye saying, will you trust me? Don't fear, just believe. Let's go in this house. Verse 54 and 55, death He's interrupted, taking her by the hand. He calls, saying, child, arise, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Jesus' authority extends over death. I love this thoughtful little detail, that he, he makes sure that someone goes and gets her a snack. I mean, she's died, for heaven's sakes. That's quite an ordeal. She's going to be hungry, right? Go get her something to eat. And in this moment of truth, Jairus, with imperfect faith, he trusted Jesus. He went into the house with his wife and Jesus and these two disciples. And he said, All right, I'm gonna gonna not fear, I'm gonna believe. He said she's gonna be well, and she was well. Now, here's another sidebar here. What about us? We all face sickness and death, and a Jesus who's more powerful to death. And Jesus, I want us to point out, look at the look at the phrase, do not fear, only believe, all and she will be well. The first two parts of that statement, Jesus has spoken to all of us in this room. Do not fear, only believe. But we've not been given the same specific promise, specifically about our loved ones, that, and they will be, if you don't fear and just believe, they will also be well. Again, I think a lot of harm has come from the false teaching that if you just don't fear and believe, then healing will come. And then when belief doesn't lead to wellness, the conclusion is I must not have believed enough. But Jesus didn't give us the same temporal sense of promise that he gave Jairus in this particular scene. But here's what we need to realize. Jesus has made that last guarantee to every child of God in an eternal sense. Absolutely all will be well. If we don't fear, just believe, ultimately because of what Jesus did at the cross and his resurrection Ultimately, all will be well, right? Forever, that's what we believe. That's why he's our only hope, comfort in life and in death. Even God can't separate us from the love that's in Christ Jesus. It can only speed us along to a fuller experience of it. So until that day, Nolan, can you put that up again? I want to go back. This is what we're saying is our comfort in life and death. Until that day, he preserves you in such a way that without the will of your heavenly father, not a hair can fall from your head. Indeed, all things must work together for your salvation. Therefore, his Holy Spirit, he assures you of eternal life to make you heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. The world may laugh at that and say, do you really believe that? But do you? do you? Do you look at this Jesus that we just were beholding in this scene and you say, I, I trust that Jesus. He's, he's real. He's true. Here's how I want to close tonight. I, I love my church family. So often uh, the lives of, of the family uh, of God at Grace Evie Free Church that I get to, to, to live life with and minister to are these shining examples of the very things that we're looking at in scripture. And I want to Kind of like Jesus commended this 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 humble woman's faith. I want to commend two saints from Grace here. Most of you don't know. You know both of them by name. But Melody Litza, who's a member of Grace, who I've known for almost 30 years now. I've known her since she was a senior in high school. Um, and Dave Kuntz, who was a member of Grace, our church, for years and who's now with Jesus. But th- this won't be long. But Melody suffers from a, r- a rare form of muscular dystrophy. It's degenerative. Um, it's been it's been brutal to watch. I mean, it's just—it's just a horrible digression. She's in a—you in a know—significant electric wheelchair right now. Um, has a, a G tube for feeding. I mean, it's just—it's—it's it's, its an ugly thing. It's just one ugly example of the brokenness of our world and the curse that—that that one day Jesus is going to undo. And she's a wonderful example of faith, real faith. It's not just pasted on Ned Flanders' faith. She blogs. If you want to go check it out, by the way, she has a blog called Counting Our Blessings where she has for years blogged about walking by faith through the heart of suffering with this muscular dystrophy. I'd encourage you to go read it. But what I'm going to read you actually came from her Instagram a little while back. One day, she posted this Instagram story, and she said, frequently, people with good intention will ask her, Melody, um, have you seen any improvement in your condition? And, and they mean well, but it's just not that kind of a condition. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's degenerative. And she's grown so gracious in responding. I think of my, my attitude, I would want to say, do you understand what I have? You know, I'd, I'd want to like point out what a stupid question that is, but she's not like that. And she, on her Instagram, she says, just so you know, here's how I usually respond when someone asks me, um, have I seen any improvement? She says, I usually say, physically, No. But spiritually, yes, the Lord is continually working on my heart, growing my dependence on him as I lean into him for strength and leading. The Lord truly does draw near to the brokenhearted. And I think sometimes we miss it, she says, because we're expecting the Lord to take our heart completely away. We have expectations of what we think it looks like for the Lord to draw near to us, but the Lord always draws near in the ways he sees are good for us. Sometimes, that means not taking the difficult away, but helping us walk through it. And then she finished, Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to things that are seen, like bodies that are wearing down, but to things that are unseen, like a resurrected Jesus in heaven who's the guarantee of the bodies imperishable that we will inherit and live in forever with him. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Is, is that your hope in life and death? Last one, Dave Coons. Dave Coons battled cancer for a few years before the Lord took him home uh, at Grace. And at his memorial service, his wife Karen beautifully stood and shared about his life and faith. And she read this one note that Dave, Dave was so thoughtful when, when he realized, um, short of a, a miracle, and a, uh, you know that didn't look like a miracle happening, um, he was going to die of this. He bought a new wide-margin Bible and began reading it from cover to cover writing notes in the margins for Karen and his kids. He wanted to just leave them. I mean, such a thoughtful and a loving husband. He wanted to leave everything for her ready. And so, so she, she was walking by faith, following his faith. But he, she shared about it in April of 2019. It hit this point where he realized, I, I don't think I'm going to get better. The Lord could do what he wants, but it doesn't look like it. And he could tell that Karen was struggling deeply. And she woke up one morning and he had written a note for her on the kitchen counter. And and it said this, Dearest Karen, understand this. My illness is not about others. I'm not a casualty in some cosmic movement Of God's will. In other words, he's not saying, he's saying, I don't look at this as something like, well, in the big picture, God's going to do something good with this for maybe others, and it kind of sucks to be me, but in the bigger scheme of things, we'll all see it was for a good purpose. But he says, no, no, that's not how I see things. He didn't see things that he was a casualty for a greater good. Here's what he went on to say to Karen He said, This is a gift from God. The this in that sentence is bone cancer. This is a gift from God, he says, an opportunity to learn things I can only learn this way. To learn to long for what is to come rather than to cling those things, to think those things that lie behind. And he says, Karen, you've been invited to share in my journey. So I have to trust that in some way you will also share in the blessings as God intends. And it's amazing. I'm terrible with dates. When did Dave go home, Eric? It's been a, just over a year, I think we just passed. It's been amazing to see since Dave's gone home to be with Jesus, we can see how God has been doing that in Karen's life. Just this summer, God made it clear, crystal clear a path for her to move out to Colorado Springs with all three of her kids and sets of grandkids and, and the Lord's providing for him, her in ways and blessings uh, that God has intended for her all along. And Dave had that sort of faith in that day to say, Karen, let, let's trust in Jesus that he's got us. We are in the hands of our faithful Savior. So here's how I want us to close. Whatever things you're facing right now, to whoever Jesus is looking in the eye, you in the eye right now and saying, yeah, I see that. Don't fear, just believe. Do you know who I am? Do you trust me? As a declaration here together of our active trust as we go that's growing by degrees. It's not perfect, right? Could we stand? I want us to read this out loud. I've read it to you one time, but I would love for it to come out of all of our mouths here as we finish, and we're going to sing a little chorus. Friends, what is your only comfort in life and death? Can you put that up, Nolan? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore... By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Sing. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more, amen.